This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Rick Zamperin has been in the building now since I don't know when. He slept here last night. He pulled a Costanza under his desk and, and it was slept. Nine thirty-six a.m. to be exact. Thank goodness those pillows work and you yes. can get a nap oh my during gosh. the day. I've I've created a pillow bed in my office. Yeah, well, you know what? Considering now you work for them, so the, or you speak <laughs> for them, so you've got thirty-seven of them yes. in the office. <laughs> I can't get rid of them. It looks it looks like the my bed at home when my wife decides to decorate oh, the house. Don't even get me started. You can't even see the bed. There's just pillows. All shapes and colors. How many pillows do you have in your bed? I would guess, well, uh, are you talking on a day-to-day basis or on a dress-up day when we have guests over? Maybe your median kind of average On on a day-to-day basis. When I go up and start to take the bed apart to get into bed, there are one, two, three, four, at minimum six. I I have seven. I have seven right now. And these are not. Oh no, actually seven because there's also the the <laughs> one that uh, if I'm if I'm late getting home or something, right. she will take the full. Is like a full body? Body, size, like six yeah. foot long thing. <laughs> that then when I try to get into bed, yeah, literally you I've have got to body check out. I, I I will have to fall asleep with one buttock hanging off the bed <laughs> because there's no room to get in between the dogs, the uh, body pillow, and my wife. Yeah. I am uh, I am barred from. Sleeping. Uh, of the seven pillows on my bed, uh, I would say four are very useful. Maybe five. Two decorative. No, they, they, yeah, they have no they have no purpose whatsoever. Whoever it was who created the idea of those cylindrical pillows yes, yeah. is a genius because they serve no purpose whatsoever, and yet it seems to me that almost every house has one, yeah. and the only thing you do with them <laughs> is take them off the bed and throw them That's on the right, floor. That's right, yeah. I've tried using one of those, like just like with as a neck support type nope. thing. It's it's worse for your neck. No, yeah, no, they, they are completely without use, yeah, yeah. and go to a pillow store. They are the They're most expensive the yeah. ones to buy. <laughs> Honestly, it's Crazy. it's the most... Anyway. How's you get in the pillow business? Well, you are, aren't well, you? Well, kind of sort of. Speaking of the business, uh, yes. we only have a couple minutes for this, a few okay. minutes for this, but I want to ask you because I thought this was a, one of the more puzzling press releases that came out this afternoon. East Division's 2016 Most Outstanding Canadian Fan 2s returns to the Ticats. Mm-hmm. Okay, he signed. He's playing for the Ticats. The yes. knee, yeah, he's recovering from the knee injury, the knee surgery, but okay, he'll be back. Mm-hmm. But then you read the small print afterwards. 12-year CFL veteran to serve as coordinator of player development. Yes. What? What is that? <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's a front office thing, yes. but you read the entire, and then I've read the entire press release. Right. And it's just a history of his so statistics. Is he playing? Is he retired? Is he hoping to play again? Right. Is he, w- do you know what's going on? Well, nowhere in the release does it say that he is retiring. No. Or, or is he, I mean, there's, n- there's not even a mention of the word retirement or retiring. Uh, so I think it's safe to say that he's obviously not retiring. But plus it says who is currently rehabilitating yes. a torn ACL, which rehabilitating suggests... He's going to be coming back. Trying to, yeah. So, I mean, towards the end of last year, actually after the season last year, uh, Kent Austin, uh, head coach of the Ticats, said um, when asked, you know, what about Andy Fantuz? Uh, you know, obviously he suffered this uh, uh, career-threatening um, uh, ACL injury uh, just before the season finale, and he said they'll have to get creative. They want him back. They see some value in, in what he brings uh, on and off the field. You know, veteran presence. He's got a great cup ring. Uh, he's uh, been fantastic on the field. He's, he's, he's uh, in the community. He's mm-hmm. you know, one of the faces of the franchise. Uh, so I think this is part of the being creative. So as the coordinator of player development, 
he's going to hang around practice. He'll be at training camp, I'm sure. He'll be in the film room, all the all the team meetings, and helping players along, helping rookies and first and second year players get ingrained with the playbook, just be more entwined with what Hamilton is all about. With the end goal of him sometime this season, probably in October, maybe even later than that, if it is uh, you know, a, a scenario in which the Ticats are in the playoffs and then he's ready, uh, he'll eventually, I think, step on the field. A player who is injured and not on the active roster, their salary would not count against the salary cap. That is correct. This would strike me as also possibly a creative way to not let another team sign him because I'm sure they're paying him a salary. Yes, to do this job. Oh, so they you have st- to. You stay here and we'll pay you mm-hmm. as if you were healthy. Yes. And if it turns out you can't come back, you still have a salary. And yeah. if it turns out that you are healthy, you go back and play. This may have been, it looks to me anyway, like a way if some other team had been interested, here's a way to make sure mm-hmm. that he stays here because you're pro- maybe you get more money by sticking around. Well, definitely so. I think, well, A, let's say he comes back in October. Uh, so now he's going to get paid until October. The other option he has is not getting paid until October and maybe taking a chance at that time to sign with another team who might have a great need for a receiver because they have other injuries. Uh, this, I think, is a win-win for him. He stays where he is. He knows the team. Uh, I think it may even ease him into a future in, in coaching or, or doing something along the lines of a front office uh, job. Uh, and, you know, with the goal of, you know, when he is ready, that he will be back. It certainly is interesting. I say I read it several times trying to interpret, and and the best we can interpret is exactly as you just described. Let's see how the knee goes and whether he can come back, and if he can, then we've got him under contract. I see it somewhat, I mean, a little bit different, but somewhat similar to what Chad Cackert did in his final two or three seasons with the Argos, in Mm. which he, too, suffered a a debilitating knee injury, uh, became Toronto's, I think it was the strength and conditioning coach for a season, uh, and then came back. And yep, obviously yep. wasn't the same player, but, you know, had uh, you know had uh, an ending to his playing career. See, you're going Chad Cackert. I'm thinking Reg Dunlop. <laughs> playing <laughs> coach Dunlop. with the yeah. Charlestown Chiefs. <laughs> that would be a fine example. Yeah, of, uh, let's have, that would be the Paul Newman character in Slapshot, yes. the playing coach. Andy isn't quite as gray. No. And I don't think has been in quite as many brawls, at least not that we know of. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't probably doesn't know a set of triplets who uh, like to bash people's heads in. <laughs> that's true. You know that's that's what the tie cats <clears throat> need to find football's answer to the Hanson brothers. Wow. That would be yes. That would be something. Uh, just a couple minutes before we uh, send you off on your way because you really have been here all day long. Uh, endless amounts of discussion today about Kevin Pillar. I'm not going to yeah. ask you about Kevin Pillar. That story has been uh, I think well covered. Mm-hmm. Less talked about today, although I'm really interested in this, the Jose Bautista bat flip. Now, I <laughs> yeah. I really believe when you watch the... Now, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, Jose Bautista, I'm sure you heard it by now, but hit a home run last night, down 8-3. Not the mm. time, not a big moment, really. Yeah. And flipped his bat as if it was the Texas game from right. a few years yeah, ago and, yeah. and caused a stink. And if you look at the replay, it looks to me like by the time he gets to first base, he is thinking... What well, that was stupid. <laughs> and, and then, by the time and then he gets, got catcalled, basically, by all the Braves players. Yeah, and by the time he gets home, to the home plate, you yeah. can see he's actually, I think, apologizing to mm. the catcher. <laughs> well, that was really dumb. Sorry, yeah. my bad. But in, in baseball now, can you, for, for your perspective, when is showing emotion... Mm-hmm. That kind of emotion. When is it acceptable? What is the situation, the circumstance? Because I had no problem with the yeah. Texas home run. That was a that was a moment, capital sure. M oh, moment. Yeah. Yeah. 
But it, generally, when is baseball is very staid and very mm-hmm. conservative? When's it okay to show that kind of emotion? I, I find this story interesting too because of the of his history with the bat flip. I mean, he's had the most epic bat flip in baseball history. But here's a guy who's been in the league for. A while now. I mean, he is a wily vet. He should know. And hit a lot of home runs. And hit a lot of home runs. So, I mean, he he's had his bat flip moments, obviously. <laughs> he should know, if anyone, uh, when and when not to, to show up the other team. And that's basically what a bat flip is. Yeah, there is some emotion to it, and some, some are warranted. You know, you're excited. It, it's an emotional uh, game. Uh, you know, you, you let your emotions out. I don't, I don't really have any ill will towards, you know, guys who do that. But... In a circumstance uh, that we saw last night, it would be no different than, you know, Ottawa's up 4 nothing last night, and, uh, you know, Pittsburgh gets a goal to make it 4-1, and the guy goes absolutely and crazy. And rides his stick like Tiger Williams. Yeah, I mean, there's a time and a place to show emotion, and sometimes you just have to be, you know, a little reserved to say, all right, we're getting our bums handed to us. I, I should be not as emotional as, as I want to be. I, when this discussion came up, because some people want no none of this in baseball. Yeah. And I'm looking going, wait a second, let, just look, let's remember some Jays moments. Should we have asked Joe Carter not to jump around right. the bases when yeah. he hit that home run because it was showing yeah. up the opposition? Robbie no. Alomar with the arms Robbie Alomar with two hands up when he hit off Eckersley. Yeah. There are moments that are m- magnificent enough yeah. that I think it makes all this, it's, it's a spontaneous, not thought through reaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those, the biggest thing to me is none of those moments were anger moments. Right. Yeah. They were all happy moments. This one seemed like it was because it followed the Kevin Pillar, the yeah. quick pitch, everything else. This one seemed like it was, as you say, sort of a stick it to yeah. you yeah. kind of in your face thing. Um, wrong place, wrong time though. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> I, but the amazing part about this is that you talk to everybody, everybody mm-hmm. seems to have a different thought on when you should be allowed to celebrate in baseball. I can't understand how baseball, and I love baseball. It's arguably, with hockey, my favorite sport, why some people believe there should be no yeah. personality in the game. I have a theory on this, and I think it's because, you know, baseball, more than football and hockey and basketball and soccer and all those other team sports, baseball's a lot of it is one-on-one. It's mm-hmm. pitcher versus batter. Uh, obviously when the batter puts the ball in play, then you have that team kind of aspect, you know, guys covering bases and and whatnot. Uh, but it's really that one-on-one kind of me versus you. And uh, we know these guys are loaded with testosterone, uh, naturally or not. Uh, and, uh, sometimes emotions <laughs> More get so high. now, yes, naturally. But, but I mean, would you do this in the first inning? Like, you know, leading off the game with a home run. I, I don't know that's the time and the place either. I mean, you could be excited, sure, but I, I don't think you're going to be, you know, jumping around like a crazy person just because you hit a leadoff home run. So what is the difference between the Ottawa Senators last night scoring early in the game and getting really excited and jumping around and a yeah. baseball player hitting a leadoff home run? What's the difference? The difference is that there's a lot more action to come in a baseball game. There's a lot more one-on-one. But if you score a, a, a touchdown on the opening kickoff, yeah, guys don't just run in the end zone, place the ball down, and run back to the very sideline. Very true. Yeah, very. No, that's a great. That's a great point. It's a great point. I just I've never understood the idea that you are supposed to in baseball just stifle mm-hmm. all. I mean, we see pitchers who do a little fist pump. After a big strikeout, yeah. and guys in the other dugout are bent out of shape about it. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like, well, if you don't want him to pump his fist, hit the yeah. ball. I think for self-preservation, when you're a batter especially, if you, I mean, if you got a hit every time you went to the plate and you celebrated, like, you know, you hit, you know, the, the, the World Series winning home run, that the next time you're up at bat, you're going to get beamed. And 
if you get beaned enough times, I think you're going to quote unquote learn your lesson. Either right? that, or you'll be coach on Cheers, or that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ernie Pantuso. Um, I, I, uh, we got to we got to break, but I will say this about being switching, jumping around about being beaned because this is something I was on with Bill Kelly today, and mm-hmm. this is this drives me nuts. Baseballs. The one part about baseball that I that just infuriates me is this beanball code. Yeah. Especially in the American League, when you're a pitcher and you never, and if you're a pitcher in the American League, and you hit a batter mm-hmm. intentionally or otherwise, yeah, you're safe. It is my belief that you should have to go up to bat the next inning. <laughs> yeah. That you should have to take yeah. the place of one of the batters the next inning. You want to see that beanball culture mm-hmm. get taken out of the game? Make those American League guys who are really brave when they're on the mound with yeah. a ball throwing 98. And make them now stand in there and see how see if Chris Sale wants to throw behind an Oriole player exactly. if he's about to go up and take one in the chin. Yeah, probably not. It would still happen, but it would happen very, very seldom. Yeah, but we see a lot less. I think a lot less being. Uh, I'd like to see the stats. A lot less beating in the National League. I think I would agree, and we've seen a ton of it in the American League yeah. already this year, like a lot more than I remember yeah. seeing in the past. And it's because it's great to be brave. Mm-hmm. Like, imagine if you were a boxer. This is the only comparison I can have. If you were a boxer, and for the first punch, the other guy had to tie his hands behind his back, right. and you could drill him, and then you got to leave the ring, and your substitute came in to finish. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, wait a second. Yeah. That, that doesn't make analogy. any sense. But that's what you're doing. You yeah. get to throw a punch and never take one back. Mm-hmm. And if the guy does rush the mound to give you one back, he's going to be suspended for exactly. 10 or 15 games. Exactly. So. I, I I say we make the make the off sometimes cowardly pitchers have yeah. to grow a pair instead of getting rid of the DH. Yeah, just you know what you hit it, even if it's an accidental because the players know when it's unintentional mm-hmm. and when it's intentional. We saw the one in um, Baltimore this year when Kevin Gosman got ejected yeah. for hitting a guy with a curveball that I slipped know. out of his hand. Well, <laughs> I can't remember which team he hit. They knew that it wasn't intentional, totally. so Gosman could have gone up to bat. And he was not going to get drilled. Yeah, but Chris Sale would have taken a high, hard one. And I don't oh, think Chris. Sure. And I don't think Chris Sale throws that pitch behind Manny Machado if no, he knows if that's he knows coming. He's coming up to bat. Rick Zamprin, go home. <laughs> okay. Uh, clean off those uh, seven those pillows. pillows. Yep. yep. And uh, rest on your what's the name of it again? My pillow. Your my, well, no, your pillow. Well, it's called my pillow. Okay. Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a pronoun challenge device <laughs> very difficult to talk about try voicing the commercials yeah you're my pillow <laughs> Rick Zanford thanks for doing this anytime uh, you can there is by the way for people who are uh, interested in this Andy Fantu story apparently he is going to have some sort of um, casual meeting with the press tomorrow where I'm expecting that it will be clarified a little bit, but I, I, I believe that Rick has it exactly right. This is going to be working for the team and getting a head start on his post football career until he's able to play. And then, uh, it will be put on hold briefly until he is actually done football. We will see. You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from seven to nine on AM 900 CHML. It was, I don't know, two or three weeks ago on this show that we had a great chat. A lot of people calling in because we were asking the question about who is the face of Hamilton? Is there someone who is, when you think about Hamilton, that that is the person who is most identifiable with this city? 
And there were a lot of different suggestions. A lot of people called in. A lot of people had ideas. Ange Mosca was one. Teenage Head was one. Arkells were one. Go down the list. Tom Wilson was one. Um, whoever. I mean, just think anybody who is from this city who is famous essentially could be it. Ange Mosca seemed to be the leading contender, whether you agree or not with that. But it came, that comes to mind again today because Emma Riley in The Spectator yesterday wrote a piece. It's in today's paper. It's on the website right now. Asking about a similar question, but about food. Does Hamilton have a unique, uniquely Hamilton dish? Is there something in the world of cuisine that we can point to and say, this is ours? For example, if you were to go to um, Winterlude in Ottawa and go skating on the Rideau Canal, you will have Killaloo beaver tails. That is, those are all over the place now, but that is identifiable with Ottawa and with skating on the canal. You go other places, there are things that are uniquely identifiable with those cities. What do we have in this city? Well, Emma joins me now. Emma Riley from The Spectator. Emma, thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. How are you? I am well. So what led to this? Uh, were you just sitting around thinking, my goodness, um, I want to make a dish for my family. I got two young kids and I want to be so Hamilton-esque that I want to <laughs> cook something that they are going to eat and actually have soot from the steel mills falling on them as they eat. I mean, what, what prompted the idea? Well, it was a story that I was working on last week, actually interviewing the authors of a new cookbook that came out and it's called Feast. Uh, a Canadian road trip or an edible road trip. And it documents these two young Canadian women, Lindsay Anderson and Dana Van Veller, I believe are their names. And they got in a car, drove across Canada over the course of five months with the goal of trying to sort of pinpoint Canadian cuisine. And of course, they found that was very difficult because it's such a huge country, uh, geographically, and also you know, diversity-wise, regionally, like, climate-based. So they just found that it's kind of impossible to pinpoint a Canadian cuisine. It's basically just, like, a collection of regional cuisines all sort of mixed together. So that got me thinking, what is our regional cuisine? And specifically, what's our sort of defining culinary moment here in Hamilton? So that's how kind of how it all got started. We had, and I don't know, I cannot remember her name. I'm drawing a complete blank. But there was another (laughs) woman who did a similar thing... Uh, like that, where she went around and ate, and we had her on here a while ago, where she had gone all, to all the provinces and tried all mm-hmm. the Quebec with all the stuff. It's, it's listen, that is something that I would love to do. Me too. Oh, if, if there was an assignment that the paper or the radio station <laughs> needs me to do, uh, traveling around Canada eating different foods, I'm open to that idea. Well, I think the the wonderful thing about food is that you can talk about it for hours yes. and hours and still not be done talking about it. And the interesting thing when I put out this call to Hamiltonians is that people have been all over it. Like immediately I started getting tweets and phone messages and emails. Everybody has ideas, whether they're something sort of tied in nostalgia, something that they used to have, something that they get now, something that's made in Hamilton. There's a real sort of range of responses and it's been really interesting because people have just embraced it already and kind of run with the concept. So it'll be really interesting to see sort of what emerges victorious at the end of this thing. Emma, it's the perfect topic because not everybody goes to the theater. Not everybody goes to the movies. Not everybody likes music, although I don't know who doesn't. Not everybody drives a car. Everybody eats. 
Yeah. And everybody has to have something that they like. I, I can't imagine there's someone out there who hates every single food. And so you're going to have a favorite. And so it's a perfect, perfect topic. Now, let's go through a few of these because uh, you your lead on your piece that was online today, and this, mm-hmm. this kind of gives the example of what we're talking about. You wrote, Chicago has deep dish pizza. I've tried that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a big fan of Chicago deep dish pizza, I'll be honest. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, not the place we went to. It was just so much dough and so yeah. heavy in the cheese. But uh, It's more like a pie than a pizza. It, it is. And one piece, and suddenly you feel like you're just weighed down, like you need to be dragged <laughs> along behind the car because you can't even move. Uh, Dover has soul, absolutely. Montreal has smoked meat. Oh, mm, making me hungry. Uh, Cheshire has cheese, but is there a drink or a food that is uniquely Hamilton? So what kind of answers have you started to get? What are the foods that people are throwing out there that, yeah, this is this is Hamilton? I have to say an early fan favorite has been Roma Pizza. It seems to be sort of the thing that comes to everybody's mind initially. Is that Hamilton? Is that, I mean, is I, that uniquely Hamilton? I think it is. I think it's a Hamilton thing. And I mean, if you grew up in Hamilton in, you know, the 80s and 90s and went to any birthday party, there was probably a slab of Roma pizza there. And it's not even that great, but there's something so lovely and comforting about it. Is that the cold? Is it the cold pizza? Yeah, it's my, what my husband affectionately calls uh, sauce bread. It's just, it's literally just sauce on bread. Yeah. But it's so good. And it's just, always at the grocery store and so you can go in and grab it for a quick dinner or like I said a birthday party or you know a hangover meal or whatever and it's it's something that I think we only have here and that you kind of only get if you're from Hamilton people from out of town probably are are not gaga about Roma pizza and certainly some people in Hamilton aren't either it's a love it or hate it kind of thing but that's one of the early uh, favorites. I I've never, say. I never knew that was unique to Hamilton. Yeah, apparently so. It's a bakery in Hamilton and it, I don't believe, correct me if I'm wrong, cause I haven't actually researched, researched whether it's available outside of Hamilton, but my understanding is that it's a Hamilton thing only in Hamilton. All right. So that there's, there's one to start with. We just got a yep. tweet from Mike Fortune, who's a regular here on the show on the Friday panel yep. saying medium, double, double and Timbits. Well, that's, you know, there, there's exactly. a, there's a Hamilton meal for sure. Yeah, that's been another huge uh, suggestion is Tim Hortons anything. Tim Hortons uh, anything, right? As long as it's Tim wrapped in a Tim Hortons wrapper, it counts as a, a Hamilton meal. Exactly, because of course, you know, we have the first store here and, you know, Hamilton has for a really long time, uh, you know, embraced its Timmy's and I mean, Tim Hortons Field, look no further than Tim Hortons Field, you know, we we love Timmy's and it's a part of our sort of cultural identity and the fabric of our city. So that's been huge on the list. But I also have to say early favorite. Granddad's Donuts also. I was not aware of Granddad's Donuts until somebody brought them into the newsroom at The Spectator a few weeks ago. They're so good. I literally could eat nothing but Granddad's Donuts and become (laughs) Mr. Creosote from The Meaning of Life in very short order. Well, I honestly, that day, I think you probably would have had to fight me for the donuts because I had to stop myself from eating like seven of them. But they're so good and they're flavors that you don't really get anymore like walnut crunch or like orange twist and they're fresh they're baked there so and they're huge everybody loves granddads yeah they're they're giant they're so good because maybe um, it's just me because i've gotten bigger as i've gotten older i don't mean fatter i mean i grew up i got taller everything you know when you're a kid everything looks really big and then you get bigger and everything seems to shrink i remember donuts at the donut shops when I was younger being really big. And maybe it's just because I'm now taller and bigger that they look smaller. Or I think more likely all the donut shops have made their donuts a lot smaller, but these ones are a handful. 
they're great. And I think that's one of the reasons why people love them so much is because they're the donuts that we remember uh, from our childhood when donuts were made, you know, on site and they were fresh and, you know, they sort of had more variety. Like they're very, very well done. And so a lot of people are responding that uh, granddads should be a nomination. Good, good one. If you've ever been, for anyone who's never been to granddads, if you've ever been down in the States and gone to Dunkin' Donuts and ordered an apple fritter, which are the size of a deflated basketball, that's roughly what we're talking about for granddads. These are these are meal-sized donuts. All right. Uh, what else is on the list? There's been some more interesting ones. For example, like another thing I didn't know, but apparently all of the candy canes that you will get around Christmas all over Canada are made here in Hamilton at Karma Candy. Huh. Yeah. That, so that, that would be a stretch to call that a meal, I suppose, or a food. Well, it's a food. It's, it's a, a food. food. I mean, that's the thing. There's been some other interesting suggestions. Someone suggested a mustard, like the condiment, because <laughs> mustard has been made here in Hamilton. See, and uh, those things, the candy cane and the mustard, absolutely right. They are from here. But I don't think that if you ate those, you would say, I'm thinking about Hamilton. Right? They're from... That's that's what makes it so interesting is because there's all these different variations on this theme of Hamilton's dish. Like, it could be something that you can, you know, that originates here, could be something that is made here. Another, um, our editor-in-chief, actually, Paul Burton, came over to my desk and told me that Strub's Pickles, also a Hamilton thing, made here. I'm not quite sure about that because I always thought that they were made up the road and on Highway 6. Yeah, on the way to Guelph. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. But in this area, certainly. So... They, um, that's another sort of suggestion. So it's been a real mix of things that people associate with Hamilton and things that are made here, nostalgic things. Um, I'm trying to think there was another, there's been well, some really le- specific suggestions too, like a Shishtuk sandwich from La Luna. Oh, love <laughs> La Luna. Love La Luna. La Luna is, uh, just an unbelievably delicious place. You know what, what jumps to mind? I said Easterbrook's right off the top, which is a, oh, yeah. a, a legendary place. You know what else? Hutch's Fish and Chips has to be on that list. It is for sure. Hutch, Hutch, any, you know, Hutch's Fish and Chips has to be one of those things where you say, yeah, that is, that is definitely Hamilton. And there used to be. And I cannot remember, my wife once upon a time as a younger teenage girl used to work at Denninger's and they used to have a hamburger that was available there that was like fiery hot. And I don't mean like temperature, like you would, it was spicy hot and it was fantastic. I can't remember the name of that one. I would put that one there, but other people might say something else from Denninger's because Denninger's is a Hamilton place, right? Yeah. I've gotten recommendations for Denninger's uh, schnitzel and for Denninger's sausage. Um, apparently someone told me that the Denninger's sausage is the sausage of the Tiger Cats, the official sausage of the Tiger Cats. So Denninger's is another one. Um, also Beach Road Cabasa. Mm. That's high on the list. That was a real, that was a couple early. People seem to be very heavy on the meat. We all really like the meat dishes, apparently, between the Easterbrook hot dogs, the yes. yes, Beach Road. Um, Black Forest of, Inn. I would think Black, Black Forest someone's going to yep. put a vote in for Black Forest Inn, I'm sure. Absolutely, yep. Um, Any, anybody else? put anything in, Emma? Because one of the areas where this city is becoming more involved with its food is with the food trucks. Anyone mm-hmm. put in any kind of things for any of the food trucks? Actually, not so far. Interestingly enough, it hasn't been... I haven't gotten one recommendation for something that you might call like more gourmet, for example, 
Which is interesting uh, when you consider sort of what that says about us. I think that that's a relatively new development within the Hamilton culinary scene. I think one of the things that that is interesting about food in Hamilton, that it's changing so rapidly, you can't keep up with it. Every week there seems to be a new restaurant opening up here, something moving there, a new food truck, a new, you know, a new initiative happening somewhere. It's, It's very exciting that... When you talk about a defining food, that doesn't seem to be what's coming up, interestingly enough. Well, no, because a lot of the things I would think, a lot of, like, there's a ton, as you say, there's a ton of fantastic new restaurants, especially in the downtown. And, and, you know, you go to any number of them and the food they serve is amazing, but the ones I've been to, I wouldn't say that there's anything at any of them that you would say, that's really, when I think of Hamilton, that's the food I would think of. It's delicious but it's not something that is sort of identifiable with the city. It would be delicious whether it was in Toronto or wherever else. Yeah, and I think it really speaks to the changing nature of our city, and that's one of the reasons why this exercise is so interesting, because it kind of speaks to who we are and how we see ourselves and how that may be changing and how our perception of what Hamilton is is changing or not, depending on what's happening around us and maybe a little bit of a lapse between our identity and sort of some of this revitalization that's happening. It's really, it, superficially, it seems kind of fun, and it is, and I can't wait to sort of try and go back and taste test some of these things. But it's no also kidding. got, yeah, it's also got some, some depth there, I think, when you really think about um what it means for us as a city and sort of who we are and what we eat, which is the real fundamental question, not only here in Hamilton, but obviously, you know, everywhere across the globe. If you listening have an idea for something that should be on this list, for something that is uniquely Hamiltonian, that when you eat it, you go, that is Hamilton. You can either tweet to hashtag city dish, capital C, capital D, hashtag city dish, or you can send an email to Emma E. Riley, E-R-E-I-L-L-Y, two L's, E. Riley at thespec.com. When's the story going to run? Well, what we're going to do is I'm going to spend probably the next week or so compiling all of these recommendations. We're going to break it down to a short list of about 10 based on popularity and sort of repeats. And then we're going to ask people to vote on their favorites. So you'll have a chance to vote on your favorite of 10 based on these recommendations. And you and I then will go and dine at all these for lunch for 10 straight (laughs) days to make sure that we're covering all the bases. We're going to be eating a lot of meat. Perfect. Emma Riley, (laughs) thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Uh, again, E. Riley with two L's at thespec.com if you have an idea of something that should be on that list. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. That, of course, is Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and that voice you're hearing singing is David Clayton Thomas, one of the legendary voices of Canadian music. He is going to be in Hamilton next Thursday at Sean and Ed Brewing Company. That's on, well... Dundas, Hat Street in Dundas, for a fundraiser for an instrument for every child. And we're going to get to that in just a couple of minutes. But before we do that, let me bring in David Clayton Thomas. Sir, thank you for doing this tonight. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm watching a hockey game, too. There you go. See, just you have to. to start. You are a Canadian legend. How could you not be watching a hockey game tonight? I have to turn in my passport if I don't <laughs> watch the Stanley Cups, man. We brought you in with Spin and Wheel, which, of course, I'm sure that every single time you have ever been on a radio show, that has been the song that you have been introduced to. Now, my favorite song is And When I Die. That's just a personal thing. But I got to tell you, why does Spinning Wheel hold up so long after it came out? It still works. I don't know, but I'm sure glad it does. (laughs) 
<laughs> As a matter of fact, we just re-recorded it for the Canadiana album. I want to ask you about that in just a second, but yeah, it's it's one of those songs that I really believe if you were to do a list of the 10 Canadian songs with the most recognizable opening two or three notes, that's got to be in there. There'll be a lot of people who just hear the first trumpet blast and they know what that is exactly. Well, the reason I re-recorded it was uh, that trumpeter was Lou Soloff, the late Lou Soloff, who passed away last year. And uh, Paul Schaefer and I just went to Rochester last week and uh, helped induct him into the New York uh, Music Hall of Fame. And his family was there. It was a beautiful event. But uh, I think Lou's trumpet was just such a signature sound. for It really was. It really, really was. Now, that song, too, David, has been covered. I was looking this up today because I know it's been covered by a million different people, but I started going through the list. James Brown covered that song. Mm -hmm. Uh, Shirley Bassey, and now most people may not know her name, but she was the one who sang Diamonds Are Forever, Goldfinger, Moonraker. She's like the voice of James Bond. Nancy Wilson, the blues singer, not from heart. Uh, Barbara Eden, I Dream of Jeannie, she covered it. Uh, Lots of us. Who do you think? You must have heard every version of this. Who covered that? Sammy Davis Jr. Who covered it best? (laughs) Who was your favorite version other than you? Peggy Lee. I didn't even know that was on the list. Yep. How yeah, similar she, she is... She did a beautiful jazz version of it. Oh, really? So it's it's not entirely similar then to your original? No, well, it's good. She did, I think, with a piano trio. I don't think she did it with the horns. But, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those songs. It's been recorded in, like, 20 different languages <laughs> around the world. <laughs> You you haven't lived until you've heard Spinning Wheel in Japanese. <laughs> I I will endeavor before the night is out to find that online and uh, and listen just so I can broaden my horizons. Right, it's like look what they done to my song, mom. <laughs> well, but the thing about it, the beauty of this, and I know again you've you've got a million songs, and again a lot of other great ones. This one though seems to stand out. There are obviously lots and lots and lots of singers, artists who thought enough of your piece that they wanted to do their own version of it. So they obviously loved that song. Who do you, is there a song, whether it's by a Canadian or someone else, who do you sit there and listen and go, you know what, I really wish that I had written that song. That's one that, man, I wish that had come off the pen of David Clayton Thomas. Well, you know, it is the 150th birthday of Canada, and we just did a a tribute to the Canadian songwriter, an album called Canadiana. And I had the opportunity to do, to do just that, to sing songs by Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and Gordy Lightfoot and uh, Leonard Cohen and, you know, just people that I just really have always admired as writers. Well, I've listened to the whole album, and I, I will tell you, it is, you don't have to brag about it, I will. It's tremendous. It really is, although I'll say this, you caught me off guard with more than a few of the ways that you interpreted these songs. These were not what I was necessarily expecting, and I bet you hear that a lot. Well, we're jazz musicians, and, you know, we can't stand to just leave something alone. Clearly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when uh, I wanted to do Neil Young's Heart of Gold, and uh, we started just talking about it, and I said, uh, one day I picked up my guitar, and I said, what if we did it like Bob Marley? What if we did it as a reggae? <laughs> and everybody went, you're out of your mind. They said, no, no, listen, listen. I just started chick, 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 chick. <laughs> it made sense. Okay, so we did it. Uh, on uh, we did a, I wanted to do a Rush tune because I'm a huge Rush fan. I think they're a national treasure, one of the greatest progressive rock bands ever. Agree 100%. And uh, we did Closer to the Heart. Uh, and, of course, this is the first thing we did is, well, how can we mess with this a little bit? You have to respect the intent of the writer. 
you don't want to just totally mess the guy's song up. But if you can bring something different and fresh to it, why not? And you gave it a Latin flair almost. Well, we brought in Hilario Duran. We have a tremendous um, community here in Toronto of Cuban musicians. And uh, they're amazing musicians. So we brought in Hilario Duran and his whole band, and we did the Rush tune, Afro-Cuban. I, I cannot believe that when Neil Young sat down and wrote Heart of Gold, or when Getty Lee, or I'm not even sure if it was Getty Lee, but whoever wrote uh, Closer to the Heart, that either of them had imagined that one day their songs would be taken to a Caribbean place and, uh, and, and reworked like that. Now, they both worked. They're both, I, I will be honest with you, I had to listen twice. The first time, it was so unusual that it was more of a surprise. The second time, you can really start to appreciate how the music works. But it's well, it, you know how I feel when I hear uh, when I hear a spinning wheel in Japanese. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I remember a number of years ago, I was sitting watching American Idol with my kids when they were younger, and I can't remember the name of the guy who was the contestant. But Randy Travis was the guest uh, singer. It was they were doing country music, and this particular contestant decided to do Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire with a sitar and like completely in an Indian phrasing and Randy Travis looked at him like he was smoking something and said I have no idea what Johnny would say if he was alive with that one he might like it it, you know what it was fantastic though well that was one of the 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 challenges of making the Canadian album is because most of these writers I grew up with personally not just in the music business you know, I played clubs with these guys back in the 60s with Gord Lightfoot and Neil Young, and Joni is a friend of mine. You know, so while you're recording their song, you're thinking, I hope I don't get a phone call the next day from Gord Lightfoot who says, what did you do to my <laughs> song, man? Have you heard from any of them? Oh, yeah. And what's the feedback? Everybody loves it. Really, eh? Yeah, uh, Sarah McLaughlin loves what we did with Angel. It's a beautiful piece of work, and we're very proud of it. And... Um, I heard from Gordon Lightfoot, yeah. You did, uh, You did. as you say, you did Joni Mitchell, you did both sides now, which is just a beautiful song anyway. Uh, and, and I will say, the one thing I loved about what you did with this album uh, is that when you have a song that doesn't, re- that the song does not require to be disassembled, you didn't disassemble it. You didn't completely take it apart. I mean, some of them you can do it with. I don't know what you could have done with both sides now and not made a ridiculous thing out of it, but it's perfect. Well, we took a, a, a very obscure version that Joni uh, recorded with the London Symphony and a wonderful Mendoza arrangement in which she did the song as a real painfully slow blues. Mm. And we used that kind of as our template. We wanted to work with that version rather than the pop version that she made. And, of course, I had the advantage of having a good friend, Lila Bialy, who's one of our most gifted jazz singers, turned it into a duet with me. And uh, so that gave it its own flavor. And we did it with the string section from the TSO. And so we, we definitely took a very symphonic kind of view of it. And uh, yeah, we were very pleased with it. Getting back to Spinning Wheel for just one second, because on this album, you also take one of your own songs and you redo it. And I have to believe that the hardest thing to do it's one thing to take someone else's music that you don't have skin in the game with those particular songs. You didn't write them. They weren't your creation. So you can give your own thing to them. But I have to believe the hardest thing would be to take a song that you've probably performed a trillion times in your life and try and change it into something that is new and fresh and different. Well, you know, when we finished the album, Spinning Wheel wasn't on it. And the record company said, 
wanted me to put Spinning Wheel on the album, and I, for a couple of reasons, like, come on, man, I've sung this 50,000 times, you know, <laughs> and uh, I, we're trying to do something new and fresh here, and and of course, my Canadian modesty kind of came out, too, where I, I said, you know, we're paying tribute to the great Canadian songwriters, I can't pay tribute to myself, you know, and they said, no, no, the song's in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, it should be on the album. During the time we were having those discussions, and I was kind of against doing it again, the great Lou Soloff passed away. And it it occurred to me that we should do the song and do it as a tribute to Lou. Mm. To the point where the trumpet solo in the middle, I asked the trumpet player, I said, will you transcribe Lou's original solo from the 1969 record, note for note? And I want to play that just that way, mm. that iconic solo. Yep. And he said, transcribe it? What are you talking about? He said, every, every trumpet player in the world knows that from high school. Are you, do you remember, now it's, it's a few years ago, it's 1969 that that song was written, I believe. Do you remember when you were writing it, when you were first putting that song together, did it sound in your mind and in your first original vision of it, did it sound like what ended up on the album or is it very different what we know from the original idea of what you had? No, not so much. I actually wrote the song two years before I went to New York and recorded it here in Canada for a Canadian company, and they were horrified. They said, what is this? It sounds like jazz. We can't sell jazz. We wanted rock and roll, and they refused to release it. So I kind of was put the song away for a couple of years until I got to New York, and I pulled it out for the guys in Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and they got it. They understood what I was going for. And uh, but it wasn't that much different than the the demo that I had cut in Canada two two years earlier. Are you a performer then? When that song, because again, it's been around 1969. I don't know. Let's do the math. 48 years. That song's been around for now. Wow, that's a long time. Um, when you've heard it that many times, and you've heard the original, I mean, you every, as I say, every time you come on a radio station, I'm sure that that's the song that's played. You Not only have you sung it a million times, you've heard it a million times. Are you a guy who, when you hear your work, hears perfection, or are you a guy who hears every little flaw or something that you think, oh man, I wish I had done that different when I recorded that? Oh, I, I think I'm numb to it now. I've heard it so many times and performed it so many times. It's become part of my life. All those songs are... are like God Bless the Child. I've gotten used mm. to the fact that I will be singing God Bless the Child as long as I live. Yep. Who knew that 50 years ago? You don't know. I'm just wondering, though, if when you got the chance to rework this for your own, if it gave you an opportunity to maybe do something that you had thought, you know what, I would have liked to have tried that back in the day. Now that I've listened to it for 48 years, I'd like to do the thing I would have loved to have done back then, that as I've listened, I thought, oh, that would have worked. Well, we did, in a way, because... Uh, like most of the songs in the album, we, we did want to not just uh, do covers of it. We wanted to take it somewhere else, even Spinning Wheel. And as it was conceived as a tribute to Lou Soloff, but I also had the idea of doing it. I Back in the 70s, you talk about hearing other people playing your music. I heard a lot of the big bands play Spinning Wheel. Maynard Ferguson, mm-hmm. Buddy Rich, uh, Woody Herman's band. It would be perfect for them. Yeah, and I heard it with the big horn section. I said, well, let's get the big horn. Let's do a big band jazz, big band swing jazz. And with that Lou, with that Lou Soloff trumpet solo in the middle. And uh, that's just the way it came out. 
Well, actually, th- we're now performing more the Canadiana version than the original. Is that version. right? Well, I was going to say, I'm sure you're going to be doing that, but I, I, I want to say this as well, because again, I listened to Canadiana, I've listened to it two or three or four times through. I, I, I backtracked onto a few songs that I really liked, uh, so I got kind of caught up. I maybe haven't listened through equally four times, but there are a lot of singers, and you know this as well, who as they become a little more mature, shall we say, uh, their voices tend to fall apart a little bit. They don't sound as good as they used to. And that's just, you know, we, we all get a little bit older and then things change. You sound exactly the same. I don't know if it's genetics or I don't know if you have a secret for how you've preserved your voice, but you sound as good as you did. Yeah. Well, I got my fingers crossed. <laughs> Knock wood. I'm still singing the, uh, I'm still singing. You made me so very happy in the same key that it was written in. 50 years ago. Do you do something though, or is it just a lucky thing that your voice has stayed the same? <laughs> I just take care of myself a little more. As Ronnie Hawkins said, if I'd known I was going to live this long, I'd have taken better care of myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, good point. So the fundraiser that you're coming I to. Doing it. I love doing it. Yeah, let's talk about Yeah, let's talk about it for a second. Really exciting stuff. Well, it's for uh, a charity that is going to try and get instruments into the hands of kids. Now, I know, and we don't have time to go into all this, but if people go to your website, davidclaytonthomas.com, there is your story of how you ended up in music. Can you take a minute, or can you whittle it down to a minute or so and tell your story? Because how you ended up becoming a musician is just a remarkable story. Well, I, yeah, they can go to the website and read that, but we're, we're limited to time here and the hockey game's on, so let's talk about uh, an instrument for every child. Can we do that? Sure, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's just important. I, I got involved with these folks. Darcy Hepner is uh, head of the music department at uh, Mohawk University there in uh, Hamilton. Okay. In the Hammer, as they say. Yep. And his wife, Astrid, started something several years ago called the Hamilton Music Collective, in which they were getting uh, instruments, usually thrown away instruments, discarded instruments, fixing them up and getting them to inner inner city kids that that showed talent. And over the years, the uh, project has grown into an instrument for every child, which now gets donated instruments from all over Canada. It's now uh, connected with Mohawk, so not only are the kids getting musical instruments at a very young age, but they're getting teachers, too. So they're getting musical instruction from a very early age. And uh, I know a lot of your city fathers in in uh, Hamilton are involved with this now, and a lot of the, the top businessmen are, are donors and contributors, and it's just taken on a life of its own. This is the uh, second or third time I've done this uh, for the Hepners, and it's always just a lovely event. And uh, I think that... Uh, getting musical instruments to these kids who'd never, ever be able to afford them normally uh, is just a worthwhile thing to do, and I'm really happy to be associated with it. Well, and again, we don't have time to go into the whole story of yours, but you were a guy who had an instrument not landed in your hands. I mean, it was kind of fortuitous. You, you, you probably can see yourself in a lot of the kids who need to have these instruments come to them. Absolutely, and that's why I'm doing it, and that's, that's why I'm passionate about doing things for teens, at risk, at risk teens, uh, kids who have got troubles. I had a troubled childhood myself, and I, I relate to that. And uh, anything I can do to give back a little bit now, I, I take advantage of it. 
at this uh, charity concert you're going to be doing, you mentioned that you a lot of what you the versions you do now, or at least the spinning wheel, is the Canadian version. Will we hear a number of these songs as well as your own stuff at this concert? We're doing a, a, um, we're doing one of the duets. Jean-Vierre Marentet is uh, doing the show with me too, and she sings on the album. And we're doing a duet of uh, Buffy St. Marie's Up Where We Belong. Mm, great song. Uh, which is on the album. And uh, the spinning wheel, I don't know. It's from night to night. We, we're using Darcy Hepner's band, and he's always got a superb band. The, the lab band at Mohawk are just killers. They're just great young players. So um, I don't know which way we'll go with it yet. We'll probably, we'll probably decide in, in rehearsal in the afternoon. You have to have been at this game an awful long time to be able to show up that afternoon and figure out what you're going to play. Because most people would have something like this planned out months before, but to be able to be that free and easy to be able to figure it out, that's, uh, that's a veteran move. Well, and I'm working with veteran musicians, too. When you're working with Darcy Hepner, this guy is like musical royalty. And uh, when he says, uh, you know, show up at 4 o'clock, the band will be ready for you. I know the band will be ready. It is, uh, it is going to be an outstanding evening. Uh, information, people can find out information for this at Hamilton Music Collective, I-V-E, collective.ca. They can get um, ticket prices and tickets and all that kind of stuff. That will all be found there if you want to. And I would really encourage you to, because it really is a remarkable story. If you want to read and you don't know about David's history of how he became David Clayton Thomas, the musician. And it takes, I don't know, what would be a five-minute read? It's, it's a fantastic story. Uh, that is at davidclaytonthomas.com. You can find it at his website. Sir, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. It's a pleasure to be able to chat with you and, uh, and, and enjoy the time here. And, and thanks for raising all this money and this awareness for these instruments for the kids. Well, it's a great well, thing. thank you, Scott, and thanks for helping out. This is an important cause. And uh, I'm glad you gave us some time to talk about it. Well, and you didn't miss anything. The game is still 0-0 zero, zero and uh, you I'm know what? I'm watching so. it. I got the sound turned <laughs> off. I'm watching it while I'm talking to you. I'm just <laughs> hoping that by next year, so the Toronto look- Maple Leafs will get on top of things enough to say we got to have some of our own you know, celebrity singers come back in to do the national no, no, anthem. We got a great young team. When they didn't let anybody down this year. No, they I'm saying for the anthems, David. Hockey and their kids are 18, 19 years old. And I think with Babcock and everything else, I think the Leafs have got a great year coming up. 100%. I'm talking about the anthem. We need David Clayton Thomas singing the anthem before a game next year. (laughs) Appreciate the time. I hate doing anthems. (laughs) Thanks so much for the time. Okay. That is uh, David Clayton Thomas of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Um, Really, if you want to read a tremendous story of a guy who could have like a hundred times gone off the rails and never ended up being a musician, never ended up writing a bunch of great Canadian classics, davidclaytonthomas.com and then go, I think it's under history. I think that's what is it is, history or bio or something like that. His story is there. We didn't have time to go into all of it tonight, obviously, but um, make a point. And also Hamilton Music Collective.ca if you want to know about this particular event, if you want to go see him perhaps. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.